For player profiles, in-depth features, and exclusive interviews, visit sfhandbook.com to learn more about the best young football players in the world. Hello, welcome back to the Scouted Football Podcast. Uh, Premier League football has returned after the international break and for some teams nearly a month without playing. Um, despite being only six or seven games into the season, the first managerial casualties have fell. Um, Scott Parker was the first to go at Bournemouth, but Thomas Tuchel's departure at Chelsea took some by surprise. Uh, backed by new ownership from the United States, Chelsea have lured Graham Potter from Brighton along with, crucially, the bulk of his backroom team and recruitment staff. Uh, In order to get an expert appraisal on what's to come from Potter at Chelsea, uh, I'm delighted to welcome back Liam Tharm to the podcast. Uh, Liam is a Brighton fan, but also a tactics writer for The Athletic, uh, coaches in his spare time and greatly supersedes uh, my analytical outlook on things. Uh, Liam, welcome back to the Scouted Pod. How How are things? Yeah, good, thank you. Thank you for having me back on. It's a pleasure to be back. No, it's a, it's a pleasure to have a, a bona fide tactics writer on here to discuss um, to discuss some tactics. Really, um, how is the uh, how is the new role going at the Athletic? Yeah, it's it's really good fun. Um, I'm very privileged to work with some really really smart people um, with some knowledge of you know football sort of all across the world and people with you know as much experience in doing this sort of thing as I've sort of been alive on this planet. So it's it's fun for me and also I think good that I can bring something a little bit different as someone with a slightly different background, sort of in. Um, more in sort of an applied setting um, and at the end of the day I, I get to watch football and write about it um, and talk with some really cool people so yeah it's great fun for me. Yeah I mean I've, I've, I was saying before before we started recording you know, I've read some of the pieces that you've you've contributed to and written so far and they've been they've been really spot on and very much in keeping with the theme that you expect over there. Um, it, it, obviously tactics you know in, in sort of the, the analysis stuff that I've done previously it's really intensive. Do you find that it's um, is that just something that you just love to dive into and, and really get lost down the rabbit hole of? Yeah, as you said, it's very easy to, to get into a rabbit hole. I think I've, I've always just sort of since from when I was at uni um, and just sort of through, through a passion of wanting to sort of understand more generally why things sort of happen as they do or, you know, what constitutes sort of um, things that lead to success and definitely sort of in, in the sporting front when you can start to pick out things. And I think it's just a real, uh, you know, recurring cycle of you spot one thing or, you know, you see a certain move or you know, a certain passing pattern or, or maybe a set piece routine and you, you see it once, you sort of make a mental note and then it happens again and you, you start to see these things and put these pieces together. And I think it's, it's, the more and more you do it, the more exciting it becomes and you just keep going further and further and sort of being like, I just really want to know how this team does this or how they manage that. Because, you know, the, as, as a fan, fundamentally, you know, you, you want your team to win, don't you, at the end of the day? So I think that's where it probably all stems from of, this is going to help me as a fan understand why we will or won't uh, possibly be successful. Um, but as you say, it, it can be quite intensive sometimes watching a game and being like, I just can't play anything out of this. And sometimes I'm like, maybe maybe that's fine. Um, but no, great fun all round. Yeah, it is sort of the, the why really, isn't it? That's the, that's what intrigues. The, mm. You, you want to know why these things are happening or why why they're why they're not happening essentially that's probably half the battle as well sometimes um in terms of um brighton and, and yourself you know the, the last time you were on here was um discussing um brighton it was i think it was a season or two seasons ago probably 
Um, and obviously a lot has changed since then, a lot in the very recent past um, with Graham Potter moving on, Roberto De Zerbi coming in. Um, but we're here to talk about Chelsea today um, because obviously Potter has, has moved to, to Stamford Bridge along with the bulk of his coaching team, as, as I alluded to in the introduction. Um, I mean, in terms of a background on, on Graham Potter, I think most people will be aware of him. Um, you know, having followed the Premier League over the past couple of years, he's obviously been Brighton manager since 2019. Um, but you know he's he's one of those. It, it's it's a feel good story in a way. You might not agree with it being a, a supporter of Brighton, but um, you know for somebody who ten eleven years ago was was coaching Leeds Carnegie, which is very very strange for me because that's only a stone's throw from from where I'm recording this. Um, but from someone who started out essentially in in the very lower leagues, um, spent seven years at Ostersund in uh, Sweden, taking them from the the fourth division there to um, to European football essentially. Um, and, and getting them into the top flight, um, then you know, get, I think it's probably fair to say that on reflection, it doesn't seem like a gamble. But at the time, it definitely was a gamble for Swansea to mm. to take a punt on him. Um, but he did really well with them there during 2018-19, and then from there he, he got the Brighton job. Um, so it, it feels as though not everything's come full circle because that's not the the right term for it. Um, but he's he's always been on the the up and up, and to get a job of the the prestige of Chelsea is. Is, um, is 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 fitting of um, you know the the regard in which he's held. I think, especially in, in English coaching circles. Um, from your experience of of him at, at Brighton, what was your? I mean, what was your? What were your feelings really about the the news that he was he was going to be leaving? Mixed, I think. As someone who's got, as you mentioned at the start, I, I do a bit of coaching myself and have done, and I think. He is a really good role model for sort of aspiring coaches in, in that regard. And a lot of Brighton fans were, I think, to a degree, rightly upset about him leaving. I thought the idea that he sort of jumped ship at the first opportunity was, I thought, quite harsh and also not, not massively true. As you mentioned, this is someone who is coaching university football. Um, he spent time with the uh, Ghanaian women's national team as well. Um, as you mentioned, he went up to Sweden. So he's gone on this very complex you know, footballing journey. He's gone and taken a lot of risks and gone to places that, uh, a lot of people and a lot of you know ex-pros now fundamentally wouldn't. You, you have to remember this is a player who, admittedly, I think it was only a handful of games, but he's played in the Premier League. This is a person who you know is up there with the elite level. Um, you know, there's players now that are coming out that will have that same playing background but won't take those same risks. So to take those risks, I think fully deserving. I listened to his. Um, he went on the Michael Calvin podcast recently. And I listened to that, and just the way that he speaks, I think, is is so interesting. He's so so balanced and so controlled. And I think that annoys people sometimes because as football fans, we can be very emotive and very reactionary and you know, get annoyed by things or get too happy. And he's he's almost just too controlled and you're almost like, just, just show a bit more emotion. Um, but he's obviously, he's so well uh, you know, regarded as, as sort of a thinker, um, almost gets painted as, as like a philosopher, which I think he, he'd probably laugh at, but has clearly got, you know, a real good grounding and a real good understanding of sort of the wider world and, you know, speaks a lot about, that those roles in terms of player uh, managing, sorry, or, or coaching in different parts of the world haven't been good for him in that, you know, you see different cultures and you experience, you know, different leagues where the demands are, are different in terms of having to win because it means money for players or bonuses or whatnot. Um, and I think that's all sort of reflected now in in terms of, you know, the way, the way that he coaches and sort of the relationships that he builds with players that, you know, he seems to, with a lot of players, continuously be developing at different stages of their career I'm sure we'll touch on it later on but just some key points really about there's young players at Brighton now that 
you know, are being developed that are coming through from different parts of the world and setting into the Premier League really, really quickly. There's older players who, you know, have either had a lot of time at Brighton that have been then retrained and sort of reimagined. There's people like Danny Welbeck that he's brought out from. Obviously, this is a, a club-wide approach, by the way. Graham Potter will say himself that he's not solely responsible for this. You know, but at the end of the day, he, he is the head coach. He will you know, be in the firing line. He's, he's brought Danny Welbeck from a player who was very injury-prone and inconsistent to now being a, a goal-scoring, you know, continuously playing, um, really, really good number nine. So uh, I think you know, that sort of repeated success and that hit rate, um, it, it can't be lucky. Like You have to be doing things right to get that much success continually, continuously. Yeah, it has to be said, whenever I've sort of sat in press conferences and, and Graham Potter's been been in them, um, I've always been captivated. It's probably too strong a word, but you you do kind of hang on every word. You know, he, he thinks very carefully about what he wants to say um, and he articulates it quite well. Um, and he's not afraid to get a little bit spiky either, which I think will stand him in good stead going to a, you know, a, a traditionally big club like Chelsea, where he is going to be asked difficult questions when, you know, the team maybe don't win in three games on the trot, for example. Um, you know, I, I think I remember last season um, it was a nil-nil against Leeds, and and there was there were a few pockets of booze at the Amex, um, and you know he came into the press conference afterwards and said, you know, I think this the, the, this club needs a history lesson. You know, we're ahead of Manchester United in the table, and I thought that was, you know, for a for a manager to come out and say that was was you know he not that he felt secure in in his regard in in the regard that he was held by the fans, but you know he was you know very. Um, forthright in, in what he wanted to put across in that, you know, it's a process and it's a slow process. It won't be immediate, um, the success. And I mean, that's that's one of them, perhaps maybe the concerns that I've got with him at Chelsea, but uh, we'll get onto that in a bit. Um, but he does seem to be a very, um, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't be in, in the category to call him a philosopher, um, but, you know, someone who is um, very, very measured, very level-headed, uh, I think, as well. Um We'll start on sort of the, the stylistic styles and the, the tactical styles of, of Graham Potter at Chelsea, um, using your obviously expertise of, of watching him uh, intently at Brighton. Um, how do you think he fits at Chelsea? Because you see lots made about how his teams are adaptable depending on which opponent they're going up against. But over the past couple of years, and especially over the past year or so, it's definitely been one of the more interesting tactical setups uh, in the Premier League. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know lots of sort of neutrals have enjoyed watching us, which is is a compliment to sort of some degree. Uh, I think a, a key point really is that the the squad, in terms of sort of individuals and um, collectively, massive has gone through an overhaul in the in the time that he's been here. There's, I think, probably only Pascal Gross, um, Solly March, and Lewis Dunk uh, are the ones that are sort of remaining from uh, when he sort of first took charge, and even then, Solly March has been sort of reimagined now from. You know, being sort of a, a more traditional winger um, or sort of playing both flanks now being like an inverted wing back. Um, Pascal Gross as well, sort of now playing a lot deeper than he was. He was sort of a, a number 10 second striker when he played under sort of Chris Hutton. Obviously, Lewis Dunk is still pretty much the same as a, as a central defender. Um, but to integrate all that talent, I think, is, is really, really impressive and definitely not um, something that's easy to do. And his success has really come, I think, sort of aligned to periods where he's tried a shape or tried a tactic um, and it's it's really worked for a period of time. He had a period uh, in the 2019-20 season, which was his first um, at Brighton, where uh, he had sort of the, the Red Bull-like sort of 4-4-2, but with the two sort of advanced midfielders rather than uh, sort of traditional wingers that, that worked really well for a period of time. 
Uh, and then in, I think either at the end of that season or it was 2021, um, 22, where he then played split strikers. So he had um, Neil Morpé and, and Danny Welbeck um, both on the pitch, but they were playing like, you know, really out on the touchline and was having these central midfielders making these runs from deep um, and sort of almost like a, a WM, if we want to go sort of old school with it, um, type of shape. And obviously it's now sort of changed to a back three, um, which has been a real sort of cornerstone of our success. And I think comparatively to Chelsea, we're one of the most similar teams in that regard in the sense that it's really like a box or diamond midfield um, where you've got like a double pivot or two deeper line players, which for us has been uh, Moises Caicedo and Alexis McAllister uh, this season. And McAllister was signed as a number 10. Um, he's still, I think, 24 and was signed a few years back and has you know, come in, been, albeit slight, slightly tweaked in terms of his style and is now playing some of the best football, if not the best football he's ever played for us. And like to do that obviously suits the recruitment style, which might be very different to Chelsea, but, you know, possibly very good at, a player might just, you know, be able to form or stop being good all of a sudden at one thing or be good. And he's able to then, you know, with his coaching staff, which, as you say, is a big reason probably why he's taken them all over, because these are all part of this process. And, you know, to then either make these players better or keep them performing well, which I think is really, really impressive that there's players that might be written off at Chelsea that could quite easily, you know, come in and have sort of a, a new life or sort of be reimagined. Um, and that sort of shape, whether he sticks with it, I was quite intrigued um, watching, I can't remember who they played. Um, it might have been like Leipzig or Salzburg in, in the first game. Uh, the first yeah, League Salzburg, game. yeah, yeah. Salzburg, yeah, yeah. Um, and he had Sterling obviously out as the, the wing back, which I think a few people were irritated by at first. But again, that's a real you know, benefit of what we've done this season where he was doing that with Leo Trossard at Brighton, who is traditionally more of a winger, 10, 3.80 if you want to call it. Basically, more of a, a dribbly boy that likes to score and assist. Definitely not like a, a defensive player by any means. Um, and at times we've, you know, almost been pressing with sort of seven players with those those four midfielders, um, the two wing-backs and our number nine. And it's been just like three central defenders left. And you'll and people will look at it and see, like some Lewis Dunk, Adam Webster, Joel Veltman, these players who, I mean, maybe you could say Webster's got a bit of pace, but none of them are particularly fast. And the, the potential worry to have them defending in wide areas. But I think one of his the biggest praises that no one gives Potter, and I get it because defending fundamentally isn't sexy in English football, but he turned Brighton to a really, really good pressing team. If anyone wants a great example to watch of that, um, and obviously it's a game where we won 4-0, so it's going to look good. But the first half against Manchester United back in May uh, at the Amex was absolutely fantastic. I know United have their issues in sort of playing out um, but he set up sort of went man for man centrally. The timing of when Welbeck went to shut off these passing lanes and initiate the press and um, players going tight, you know, just everything sort of clicking and in these organised, you know, repetitive um, sort of moments. And United just couldn't get out. All they had really was sort of these wedge passing to Ronaldo, who, you know, like fair enough, that, that's a fairly good out ball. Um, but even he, with his immense vertical jump, couldn't do enough to win flick ons or sort of um, play set passes. And I think that does a lot for Potter's teams in possession because he likes to be so expansive um, and, you know, play these elaborate high passing sequences and, and keep the ball, which obviously will leave you susceptible to counterattacks. Um, and at times, you know, you won't always have a great shape behind the ball. But when he sort of really implemented that at Brighton, it meant, you know, you're getting the ball quicker, you're doing less defending, you're doing more of your defending by having the ball. Um, and I'm really excited then to see now how he tries to um, press and defensively shape up this Chelsea team. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he adapts with with obviously an, an entirely new crop of players. But I suppose that'll be mitigated by the fact that, as you mentioned at the beginning, there, there, it's been a pretty much a complete overhaul. Aside from your, you know, your dunks and marches and um and, and Pascal Grosses at Brighton over the past three years. So, 
that's probably a sign of of somebody who's who's malleable and ad- and adaptable. That you know, while players come in and yes, they have been catered to the way that he wants them to play, um, he's been able to get a tune out of them. And I I, I think you'd have to say at least 60, 70 percent at the very at the very minimum of, of Brighton signings over the past three years when he's been there. You could say have been obviously not raving successes, but like you know they've been successful in that they've carried mm-hmm. out the job. Potter has wanted them to do uh, in that they've become a very cogent, very you know structured, very um, difficult side to play, um, which is obviously a very you know it, it's a massive compliment for for a team like Brighton. Um, that well, I mean we've, we've talked about there about how potentially uh, you know things could go well for for Potter at Brighton and the the tactics that he could perhaps implement at Chelsea and, and how that could work with with you know really really talented players. But, you know, you can't get away from the fact that Chelsea managers do tend to have a pretty limited shelf life. Um, obviously, that is because the previous ownership was very willing to, to sort of, you know, cut cut managerial stints short. Um, and admittedly, Todd Bowley's decision to, to sack Thomas Tuchel, um, you know, did catch some people by surprise. But I think the time, it, was, it was coming down the line. How do you foresee Potter's time at Stamford Bridge? Because, you know, you'll be the first to admit there have been periods with Brighton where it hasn't worked as well as, you know, Brighton would like, I mean, especially scoring goals at home. Um, you know, that, that quirk of, you know, the, the, the XG and just not performing up to that level um, or the expected level. Do you think he's going to get the time to get things right at Chelsea? If for example, there is a five or six game run where it's, it's not working. History would suggest probably not. Um, and I think the, the sacking of Tuchel indicates not necessarily a continuation of that, as you mentioned, that policy where it's, you know, success needs to be slightly imminent or, or very quick. Um, but at the same time, knowing what I know of and have read and listened to about Graham Potter, I'd imagine that's something he would have been very clear about when he sort of took the job, that this this is something where he took three seasons to to make Brighton a, a top half team, or took two and a bit seasons. And it, it, I think we finished sixteenth in our in our first season under him. Or you know they were their bottom five finishes, um, definitely. And as you mentioned, there were you know um, there was analysis of sort of us, us struggling to score goals um, and sort of how how we played at times. Even last season when we had our, our best ever finish, so we, we came ninth. Um, so first ever top half finish, which was the, the long-term aim of the club to be a, a permanent top 10 team. Um, 51 points, which is, you know, everyone looked at it and went, that's an amazing season. Even within that, we had these, like, you could split it into these five chunks and three were really good and two were really bad. It was our best start ever to a season. Something like four wins in our first five, I think it was. Um, and we just never seemed to start seasons one in the Premier League. Um and then we went on a, I think I think it was a club record, um, winless run of something like eleven games. We then went and won, or went on, sorry, a club record um, unbeaten run of seven games, straight off the back of a club record uh, winless run. We then lost either five or six in a row in all competitions, um, and that was when like we lost at home to Burnley. Um, not saying that disrespectfully to them, but we played teams that were around us, and you were like, we've beaten some top sides. This this is even better now. We get to play teams that we should theoretically be beating. Um, so we lost then five or six in a row. And then I think we lost once for the end of the season and that was at Man City. Um, and we were just flying by the end of the season. We won 3-0 at Wolves, as I mentioned earlier, and we beat Man United 4-0. And there were a couple of times in those runs where people were um, possibly 
I don't think I saw too many people sort of sort of calling for Potter um, to go at any point. I know you mentioned about there were sort of a, a few boos, and I know it's not sat well with a lot of Brighton fans that I think a lot of people feel massively misrepresented in that. Like a lot of Brighton fans quite openly said, anyone that's booing Potter like is an idiot. This is this is one a long term process, and two like we've dominated this game. We've just missed a, a couple of chances to score, um, and, and and like that's okay. Sometimes he he's very open to say that. Um, sort of post match would be like. He really likes to he really likes to say sort of some of the the cliches of you know we're in a good moment or or a bad moment um, but also like he, he'll say things that to me make sense where he'd be like oh you know sometimes you've got to suffer in the game and just you know sitting back and absorbing pressure and at times is like that's just football. There's a, a great gif of him or well, it's not a great gif. It was after we we lost at home to Palace two one uh, behind closed doors and um, in lockdown where they had I think they had two shots all game and, and scored both of them and Benteke scored this fantastic volley to to win it. Um, it's, a, it's a great finish um, and it's just a, a gift of him just throwing this bottle and just looking like bewildered and, and you know just at times being like that's that's the reality um, and I'd encourage anyone who hasn't listened to um, the, the podcast from Michael Calvin it's, it's great to hear him speak for just like 40 minutes and, and give his ideas and he speaks so openly and honestly and is very self-aware of his own shortcomings and strengths and also the team and what success would look like in terms of what's like an achievable goal um, what's a literal reality of where you won't be able to reach and what you might have to deal with um, and obviously what you would really, really like to sort of stretch towards and, and sort of push for. And I think a big part of that as well, when you link that back to his recruitment and then the longevity of, of sort of his teams, um, you mentioned sort of the really good hit rate of signings coming in. Um, his, I think, head of recruitment, uh, Carl McCauley, is someone who he was working with out in Sweden, Ostersunds. Um, there's some great stuff you can find online. There's, you know, as a as a shameless plug, there's definitely stuff on the Athletic if you want to read there about sort of their relationship. Um, and he's obviously someone that he's taken with him to Swansea, now to Brighton, um, and he's obviously taken him on to Chelsea. And he he said on the podcast of Michael Calvin that that's someone who they obviously know each other extremely well. He knows the kind of player that Potter wants, and um, that's obviously a, a big you know cornerstone for the success. He he seems to be quite a good Potter at just getting the right people around him. Um, as obviously there's a limited time in his day for what he can do and will want to impact things on the pitch. So to have everything else that falls into place um, sort of makes makes perfect sense to me um, in that regard. So, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the only real sort of shortcoming could be how quickly they want this success. Um, but also I, I appreciate that for Brighton, you know, success for us was never going to be winning every week or never losing a game. You know, for us, we had those two really bad periods and still finished with our, our best ever, you know, um, return in terms of points in terms of league position so as like a success if you were to write down before the season started what's a really good season going to look like and I don't care how we do it um, you know, as I said to people would you rather us win a game draw a game than lose a game all season long all those unbeaten runs and those winless runs it's, it's just how you want success to come about and I think Potter in a great way just seems to be so unbothered by that he's like you know okay like that that happens but the success is still there at the end of the day so my hope for him is that he can get um, some of the time, obviously, that would then look very different with the Champions League and with um, European competition. So that's somewhere where I haven't seen him before. Massively. I know he had sort of Europa League, but in a very different sort of context. And people have touted him as possibly um, a future England manager, which style-wise he'd probably suit. Again, like with Chelsea, I'm not sure he necessarily will always get the time to, to be that sort of head coach or, or sort of manager. Um, so I think, I think it's an exciting challenge now for him to push to say, Okay, how can you deal with knockout football with games where it's now we need to win, we need to outscore the opposition, especially when he obviously is always going to get the media slapping that 
um, the badge on him of you know XG and, and missing chances. So for him, that's probably a really really great challenge, especially at this stage of his career. You were talking there about uh, Macaulay and uh, you know the the other sort of figures behind the scenes who he's worked with previously, and that's a I think it's a crucial, possibly unreported, um, underreported element of this this move. You know, the, the headline is Graham Potter is is taken over at Chelsea, but he's also gone with the vast majority of his backroom team, um, and that extends to to recruitment staff as well as as you say. You know, is that a signal of intent? Do you think that you know, you know, we're employing you, but we recognise that that Brighton framework has has also been vitally important to to your success there. So we want to bring them. We want to show our commitment to you, in that you're not just a coach. You are, you know, you are somebody who's going to try and really you know put put your stamp on things at Chelsea. You know how how important is the um the 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 backroom team or the the people behind the scenes also coming to to Stamford Bridge. Yeah, I imagine it's pretty fundamental. Obviously, he had um, Billy Reid and, and Bjorn um, as his sort of assistants uh, right through the time at sort of Ustersons. I know it's upset a lot of Brighton fans that, that Bruno, um, obviously the former Brighton player turned, turned coach, um, and Ben Roberts, the, the goalkeeping coach, um, went as well. I, I, again, these are these are moves that I think, looking at this for me personally, from a coaching perspective and you know, seeing these people go through this journey, I think they've massively earned it and they've been part of all this success and you know, people can discuss sort of loyalty or whatnot, but, you know, at the end of the day, football is a very difficult industry to be successful in, you know, and I'm, my worry for Potter really is that if this is his first shot at a big, a big club, quote unquote, in, in massive air quotes, because I'm not here to arbiter what people think is a big club or not, but his first job of this sort of magnitude, if this doesn't go well, does this then become sort of a red flag wrongly, I'd argue, to future teams of going, oh, well, he, he can do it at Chelsea, like he did it at Brighton and Swansea, where, you know, the, the, the task was different. He had more time. You know, it didn't have to be successful, uh, you know, every single week. But if this doesn't, you know, get off to a flying start or they're not quite where they want to be in sort of six months' time, um, does this maybe reflect harshly on him is, is sort of my worry. Um, and because of that, it, I don't see an issue at all with him taking this big step up, you know, to play in these or manage in these high competitions and to get the pay rise that he's done, this opportunity, like, you know, it's, it's fully deserved, as we mentioned at the start, when you go through that whole um, cycle in terms of, or that journey, sorry, in terms of coaching, where you come from. He's he's laid those foundations across his career. And as you mentioned, then he's brought those people with him to those different touch points. Um, and and it, it fundamentally makes sense, right? It, this is a team thing. He's just sort of the, the spokesperson, the foreman for it all. Yeah, I think that's that's completely fair. You know, he is the the, the head but I mean, the head doesn't operate without having the body behind it. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a fair fair assessment. Um, so on to sort of players, and you know, people will be interested to see um, which Chelsea players are suited to to Potter's style, to Potter's management uh, style as well. Um, who do you think stands to benefit at Chelsea, player wise, and and also who do you think me- maybe doesn't stand to benefit uh, at Stamford Bridge? It's a really interesting one because we could probably list players um, that like we, we think and then to see who does or who doesn't, it'd be really interesting to sort of compare, um, I think, give it sort of six months. Um, seven months, obviously, he's got Mark Kukurea there, who was fantastic in his debut Premier League season last year. Um, so that should be about as seamless as it comes. Um, I'm intrigued to see the goalkeepers in particular um, in terms of their, their distribution. 
Um, I've not been massively convinced by either sort of Mendy or, or Kepa, um, particularly sort of in terms of playing for distance and, and trying to pick out really nice passes. Mm. One of the massive successes at Brighton, um, and Rob Sanchez gets a, a lot of praise, rightly so, for his shot stopping because he's excellent, but he's also one of the best distance kickers in the league. Um, you'll see clips of him at Anfield, again in the final win against Old Trafford, where in the build-up to goals, he's just clipped these probably 50, 60 yard passes and drop them you know, straight onto a player, the, the precision in which that he does it. Um, I'm not quite sure that Mendy or Kepa quite have that. Um, and obviously how that would then affect build up is, is interesting. Likewise, what he does with sort of Thiago Silva, um, just because I think he's been a real cornerstone of that, that sort of Chelsea defence. And you'd like to think in terms of the academy and the young players coming through that that would open more of a pathway. He was very clear about that when he, when he came in at Brighton, I can't remember the exact number of debuts, but it's given out a lot of debuts. Admittedly, plenty were in cup games, but it's brought through graduates. Obviously, Rob Sanchez, that I mentioned, an academy grad, um, and there's players now as well, you know, in and around the squad. Um, Steven Azate also, there's more names that escape me currently. So I really hope that opens up more, more of the pathway there in terms of bringing those young players through. But in all honesty, any player that is technically good um, that can play in sort of a, a range of different positions. And as I mentioned, the chance to sort of reimagine players a little bit. We've already seen Sterling playing out in that left wing back role. Um, I don't think that will be him permanently sort of stuck there, but it's clearly a tactic that Potter likes and has worked. Um, so I think for the young players in particular, I know that's quite a, a broad stroke answer, but it's possibly the move that Chelsea needed in that regard. Um, I know they've cashed in quite literally on a lot of the young players, which is fine. You can use the academy as a, as a tool to develop young talent and let it go elsewhere. But I think it's more rewarding from a from a fan perspective. And at Brighton, we've definitely seen that of bringing through players that you've you know helped develop. I won't say produce because they're human beings; they're, they're not a product. Um, and to have them become key parts of your team is is really really good. A, a lot will be made about the the Kukurea, um partnership with with Potter there. Um, but obviously, the thing with Chelsea. That I'm really curious about is is the wing back situation because you know they've got some very very talented players on both both sides. You know you've got England internationals Reese James and Ben Chilwell. You've got Kukurea, um, and the way that Potter used wing backs, even you know this season at, at Brighton. I mean the way that he, I mean, the, I was amazed by the the positions that Solly March was taking up. How aggressive he was. Um, when Leeds went down there and played uh, and how much of a threat he was consistently. And I looked at sort of the numbers after that and he was consistently one of Brighton's more creative players. Um, what do you sort of, sort of foresee for the for the wing-back positions or the, or the wide areas? Um, is he somebody who's going to maybe use uh, Sterling and Havertz and, and perhaps play them um, in, in, a, in a narrower formation behind a, a front man? Um, like like Aubameyang, like he did in, in his first game against uh, Red Bull Salzburg? Or do you see that, you know, he's he's maybe going to ask those wing-backs to, to really push on to become, so, you know, that, that WM formation that you were referring to earlier um, and perhaps even have, you know, your, your, your Sterling drop into sort of retain the shape but change the personnel um, perhaps to, to overcome man-marking situations. You know, how do you think that this wing-back, the, the roster that he's got there works with how Potter wants to use them? Yeah, it's really interesting because you look at the right side and obviously you've got you've got Reece James there who's, who's probably the, the best wing-back that they've got. Um, ben Chilwell off the left, so they've got real talent in sort of natural-sided um, wing-backs, so players that play on the same side as their, their dominant foot, um, which obviously wouldn't naturally sort of align itself. And I, I really don't see Potter ever as a manager that will 
or a head coach sorry, that will try and force a shape, I think is very much going to keep tailoring this to the players that he's got. And of course, the challenge now is that he never had at Brighton was you're going to play a hell of a lot more games. You know, you expect Chelsea to get out of their group to go some distance in sort of knockout rounds and further in cup competition. So he's then got to find a way to have these systems that are going to suit different players. Um, and a key point about the start of the season was um, he named an unchanged team, I think, in the first three, four, five games. Um, he only made, and when he did make um, a, a switch, the only change he made was bringing in a central midfielder um, for Danny Welbeck because it was a midweek game against Fulham. And obviously, Danny Welbeck's probably not quite got the legs to play full 90s, you know, Saturday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever. Um, and obviously, you won't be able to just consistently do that sort of at Chelsea. And I think where he then chooses to make those switches, maybe it's in games where they're going to dominate the ball. Um, as we saw against Salzburg, where he's going to play those, maybe those inverted players, perhaps when it comes to bigger games, they're going to have to be more defending. He might go for um, sort of Chilwell and James and then look to be be maybe more defensive or just have players that can, can go both ways. Obviously, there's some real quality wide attacking talent um, across the Premier League. I don't think it will be as easy to always sort of play as attack-minded players. Um, obviously, at times, you sort, you sort of might get exposed a little bit. Um, but I think they're going to be really interesting solutions to sort of watch and in all honesty, I imagine if you were to break it down in the 38 games this season or 30 or however many Potter ends up having, that there'll be so many different combinations. I think that's one of the things he definitely tried at Brighton. Um, early on was lots of different ways of setting up a team or different partnerships and trying to see what worked. And eventually, you know, you bring players in, players go. Um, and he starts to really sort of fine tune and um, hone in on the sort of shape and the um, style and the players that he wants. It wouldn't be the Scouted Football Podcast if we weren't talking about young players and, and development and, and academies and stuff like that. And Chelsea's is obviously one of the best around. It's certainly one of the best in England. Um, and you'd probably extend that to Europe as well. You know, as you mentioned, that, that Potter was giving quite a few de- debuts to, to Brighton players, or to Brighton youngsters, um, over his three years, or roughly three and a bit years at, at the club. Um, and as well as developing players and, you know, the likes of Welbeck, who's what, 30, 31, 32 now, and, you know, kind of, I don't know, revived what was, what could have potentially been an ailing career. Um, how do you envisage him using the, the Chelsea Academy? Because obviously it's an embarrassment of riches, but it's a different proposition altogether, handing debuts to players at Chelsea than it is at, at Brighton, because the expectation is different. Mm. Yeah, that, that's what I don't know. Um is how you obviously go about doing that. Obviously, Conor Gallagher's you know involved with the squad this season, so I, I guess it will probably be start with the players that are already closest to 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 the to the squad or involved, and see if you can get a a player you know, up to first team level out of that. I appreciate that they've got so much strength and depth and so much quality, and um, but you really think with the amount that they're spending on players in, in the transfer window that it would be a lot more efficient if. At the same time, as trying to you know, was by these players. If you can be developing a young person in that position that you're demanding or in that role that you're desiring, um, that would be really, really valuable. So, uh, I think Gallagher will be a, not quite like a litmus test, but an interesting case study to see how does he deal with this sort of young player, um, and and then we sort of go from there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Gallagher's a good example there because he's somewhat somewhat in that middle ground where he is good enough to play a first team role. However. There are obviously attractive options that we're going to be are going to be competing with him, um, and I mean from a from academy level now to boardroom level, you often hear the term managing up, which is obviously in reference to to managing relationships with your chief executives, chairman, etc. You know anybody higher than the manager essentially. Based on how he managed managed up uh, at Brighton with Tony Bloom 
which is obviously a very um, a, a different type of Premier League owner. Um, how do you think he's going to manage working with with Todd Bowley, who still remains something of an unknown quantity? I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I've really got no idea. It's again, it's another piece of the puzzle that is different to we still with the Brighton. So, for anyone that's not aware, Tony Bloom is is a massive fan of the club. He's someone who um, has made his fortunes massive, sort of in, in the gambling industry. Um, related, um, not literally in sort of like a similar sense, sorry, but connected to Matthew Benham, um, the son that worked under Bloom, I believe. Um, sort of in, in the betting side of things and obviously being being a fan cares not more but differently I think about the success um, and obviously the, the journey that Brighton have been on um, so obviously that's going to be a very different relationship to someone who's just taken over um, which again I think it just complexifies it and makes it harder to sort of foresee how it's going to work and probably just adds to it being a bit more of a gamble um, I know that he's been quite berated by some of the media primarily just for being American, really top only and um, some of the stuff that he said. But I, I think it's it's probably going to work better than most people expect it to. Um, I think Potter is probably really, not so really easy, but I think he's probably really open and honest and clear. Um, I think him being so balanced is going to help at sort of boardroom level that he's not someone that, you know, Tuchel annoyed me slightly because often he'd come out in like post-match press conferences and would just be like moaning about things. Like he'd be saying, oh, we're, we're tired or they had a thing with their bus or something, right? Where like the players could fly, but the coaching staff had to get a bus. And, um, you know, it was just sort of overly whiny for my liking. And actually, this is a great plug for a piece that The Athletic did. Um, I can't remember who wrote it, but someone went through um, all like the post-match interviews. I think it was across last season or over a period of time. And I believe Tuchel came out as like statistically the most whining manager. Um, whereas mm. Potter, the complete other end of the spectrum, We'll just be like, yeah, we weren't good today or, oh, I made a mistake or, you know, these things happen, um, which might annoy the fans more. But I think at ballroom level, you're like, OK, at least I've not got to deal with someone who's going to go out and necessarily just you know, berate the ref or, you know, make these comments. And you know, he, he's very balanced, as people know him. I feel like you can almost speak Potter's answers for him before he says them. Like when he gets asked a question in a post-match interview, you're like, I could probably predict what he's going to say. Um, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Um, he, obviously, he might say different things behind closed doors. I'm, I'm not privy to those conversations, so I can't know. But I think in that regard, um, he's going to be much more useful. Well, Liam, thank you very much for, for joining me on the Scouted Pod. It's been a really interesting chat and um, it's definitely shed some light on on sort of the, the transition of, of Potter from, from Brighton to, to Chelsea. So thank you very much for that. Um, thank you for, for tuning in, everybody. If you've enjoyed this episode, do remember to subscribe, leave us a rating on whichever um, podcast platform that you use uh, and do remember to follow us on socials or uh, if you want more podcasts uh, from Lou and Steve uh, on transfers and the like, then do get over to our Patreon um there will there will be more and more stuff on there as the season continues uh, before we go though liam is there anything that you want to plug from from your work with uh, the athletic or, or anything like that well firstly thank you for having me again it's an absolute pleasure to be back on yeah if anyone wants to read or listen to any sort of the stuff that i'm doing you can find that over on my twitter first and foremost which is at liam thumb coach the surname is spelled t-h-a-r-m-e for anyone that struggles with that because believe me there are quite a few people that <laughs> can't always get that right um, and likewise, we're on the, the Football Tactics pod um, a fair bit as well over on any good sort of podcast provider. Um, but jump on the Twitter, you'll see all the links to sort of the stuff that I do. Um, yeah, and you'll find me over there. 
Excellent stuff, and I would thoroughly recommend that based on everything that has, uh, has, has come already from Liam uh, with The Athletic and, and everything prior to that as well. But um, yeah, thank you for, for joining me. Um, this has been the Scout Football Podcast on Graham Potter. Um, stay safe, take care, bye for now. For player profiles, in-depth features and exclusive interviews, visit sfhandbook.com to learn more about the best young football players in the world.